This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, our unicorn builder is Justin Borkman, CEO and co-founder of Starburst, a data lake analytics platform that's raised $414 million in funding. Justin, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you, Brett. Happy to be here. I'm a little surprised that you decided to join the podcast. When I was reading some of your content that you've written, I believe the words that you use were you vomit every time you read the word unicorn and you don't like to be called a unicorn, you like to be called a workhorse. So let's start there. What is a workhorse? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, I think especially over uh, the past few years uh, during the sort of heyday of a lot of money raised and a lot of lofty valuations, you know, is it really even a unicorn anymore? I, I guess is is part of my question. But but also, I think for us, at least, you know, we had a very unique beginning. We started as a bootstrap company that didn't raise any venture at all. And this idea of kind of rolling up our sleeves and doing whatever it takes is very core to our culture and, and identity. And so we crafted this kind of, you know, alternative to the unicorn that, that we call a, a workhorse mentality, which is we get in there and we grind and, and there is no task too big or too small or or too unglamorous, if you will, to get done. And so that's been very much an ethos that we've tried to uh, to craft and promote here at Starburst. And can you take us back to 2017 when you were first forming the company? What was that aha moment? What was it about this problem that made you say, yep, that's it, let's build a company around this? Well, for me, this is my second startup. And my first startup was a SQL engine for Hadoop. It's basically a way of doing analytics in Hadoop, which back in 2009, 2010 was, was a big deal. And my company was acquired by Teradata in 2014. And while I was spending a, a few years at Teradata, I was really thinking about the, the future of analytics. And it occurred to me that for decades, we've been trying to move all of our data into one proprietary data warehouse, uh, whether it's Teradata or Oracle or IBM, or maybe today, something like Snowflake. And that that path you know, was not necessarily great for customers. It created tremendous vendor lock-in and you always had data that lived outside of that, that data warehouse. In fact, that was one of the first things that I noticed when I got to Teradata was that despite them being the industry leader at the time, uh, you know, it's a 2.7 billion revenue company, not one of their customers actually had everything in, in Teradata. And that's just because it's kind of impossible to get all of your data into one place. It's, so it's, it's sort of like entropy in the universe, like things are always going to be decentralized and, and out there. And so what got me excited about the precursor to this business was really a, an open source project that was coming out of Facebook that at the time was known as Presto. Today, it's known as Trino. And essentially, that project was how Facebook was doing all of their data warehousing analytics. And what made it unique was that it could query data anywhere. So suddenly you didn't have to move it all into one proprietary data warehouse. You could leverage data lakes, you could query other data sources. So you had this, this flexibility and suddenly, you know, you were unlocked as a customer. And so we saw a lot of internet companies like Airbnb and Netflix and Uber and Dropbox and LinkedIn and Twitter all start to deploy this technology and really run their data analytics infrastructure, leveraging it. And that got me uh, interested in collaborating in the open source project. And ultimately, I met Martin, Dane, and David, uh, who were the creators of that project. And, and in 2017, we, we decided to leave our respective jobs and form a business behind this. And really, I would say the main motivation was, 
you know, could we disrupt this industry and basically like customers do data warehousing analytics without the need to move all of your data into one proprietary data warehouse? Can we really give them that freedom to do analytics regardless of where the data live? And that was kind of the big idea that that got us started. One thing I hear a lot from VCs is they don't like to back solo founders. As I was looking at the leadership page and your About Us page, it seems like maybe you took that to an extreme level because you have what, 10, 11, 12, 13 co-founders. Can you talk us through that? Yes, yes, it, it is probably to an extreme, but there's a rationale and, and reason behind it. And a big part of it was the fact that we were all friends, all collaborating in this, this open source project. And most of the people on that list, with the exception of Martin, Dan, and David, the rest were all employees of mine, actually, my first startup and, and were acquired into Teradata together. So I'd been working with these folks already for six or seven years before founding Starburst. And then bringing uh, Martina and Dan and David, the, the creators of, of Preston Trino, into the fold as well. Obviously, made sense to have them be co-founders of the company that's you know really going to promote and, and ultimately take to market their technology. And so that's the reason for so many. What it allowed us to do, though, was also really get started very, very quickly as a business because we basically had a team that already was working together. So it's kind of like, you know, imagine you could just start a company with an engineering team in place and start writing code on on day one. And so we were able to move very, very quickly with everybody knowing how each other worked and and being able to iterate quickly on the technology. And and it also allowed us to bootstrap the company. We actually didn't raise venture initially. We we first sold to existing users of the open source and we converted them on the strength of us being truly the experts in that technology and starting to build a business that way. What was the mindset going into it then? Was it to just build a big bootstrapped business or was the idea to build something at venture scale that would eventually go on and raise hundreds of millions of dollars and be worth billions and billions of dollars? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a great question because the truth, it was more the former than the latter. I think like initially, you know, especially my team members were just in love with the technology and the potential of what it could do. And I think even for myself, this seemed like a really cool, you know, business that that we could run together. And, and you know, maybe it would be a side business even. Maybe I would go do something else, you know, separately. And this would just be a cash flow positive, you know, business. And there are a lot of like open source oriented companies that that are small businesses out there that maybe don't get as much attention, but maybe are supporting smaller, lesser known open source projects and technologies. And you can run a kind of a nice little lifestyle business that way. And so Initially, that was what was attractive was the fact that we could even get this off the ground without raising venture. And it wasn't until maybe probably two years into it that we realized, okay, this could actually be much bigger than than we even expected. And that, you know, venture is probably the only way we're going to get to its full potential quickly enough to realize it. And so we we changed gears in late 2019. Can you give us an idea of the scale you're operating at today, just in terms of maybe customer count or customer growth or whatever metrics you can share? Yeah, so we're roughly 500 employees. We're about uh, 350 large enterprise customers, and the business has grown very, very quickly. We've we've doubled or more than doubled every year of our existence. And today we serve many of the largest companies in the world. Thinking of the ones that we're allowed to publicly mention, companies like Comcast, for example, that really power a core portion of their data platform there. You know, hyperscale internet companies like Grubhub, for example, that are leveraging us to to power their platforms. 
Early on, how did you acquire those first big enterprise logos? Obviously, that's something that every startup struggles with in the early days is how do you get people to trust you and really give you a chance? How'd you pull it off then? Were you just relying on that open source community that existed? That was part of it. So, you know, we had kind of inherent credibility because the technology worked at scale and it had to work at Facebook scale. And so everybody knew that it could work because normally when you're starting an enterprise software company in the first, you know, couple of years, it's tough because people just don't trust that your technology is really going to work. In our case, we could kind of circumvent that concern by just pointing to these enormous internet companies leveraging this technology at scale. The other benefit was that the engineers at those companies like to talk about it. They like to talk about the technology at conferences. Of course, this was a pre-COVID world, so there was a lot more in-person events and meetings and and so forth, you know, reInvent or whatever the case may be. And, and they would talk very publicly about the infrastructure that they deployed. And so you know, other people would come to those meetings, maybe uh, somebody from a, a big bank, for example, sit in the audience, hear about it, and then want to learn more. And, you know, they were able to prove to their bosses that this stuff actually worked by simply pointing to, you know, Facebook or LinkedIn or, or Lyft or whatever that was leveraging it at scale. So that really helped. I think in addition to that, just a little bit of my own experience with my first startup and spending time at, at Teradata, I had a good sense of how to sell software to large enterprises that, that I think helped us as well. I effectively acted as our, our sales rep for the first few years before we really hired a, a go-to-market team. And, and we were able to, to close quite a bit of business in those early days that way. What was that transition like for you when you made a shift away from founder-led sales. And the reason I ask a lot of founders I talk to, they struggle with that. Yeah, especially on the early stage founder side, making that transition is very, very difficult. So what'd you learn from that transition? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think it is difficult. I think even today, I, I love to get involved in customer sales. And it's probably one of the more rewarding, energizing aspects of my day because it it's where you get to see how the technology impacts someone. And and ultimately creates change and creates business value. And I find that very exciting. And it's also great input to product. But I think to scale, obviously, you can't sell every single customer. And so to me, I think the thing to focus on is ultimately how you simplify the sales process, how you simplify you know, enablement, how you're going to train those sellers, how you simplify the message. I think one of the challenges with founder-led sales, at least in a complex technology domain like, like ours, is that it will take years for a sales rep to know as much as I do about this space, just because it, it took me years to know as much as I know about this space. And so it's kind of like, how do you short circuit that? How do you create a shortcut to productivity for those sales reps? And, and I think the answer is just like simplifying things as much as you possibly can and finding a faster path to to productivity for those new people. But it it is definitely a transition for sure. What's a typical day look like for you today? Today, I would say it's split maybe, um, I'm going to say probably two-thirds internal, one-third external. The external piece being you know customers, events, potentially press or analysts, and then a, a bit with you know investors, be it our own investors or, or perhaps investors for a future time. And then the two-thirds part is really ensuring that we're doing the things that I think are most important for the business. I mean, I think that's one of my jobs is to really set priorities and then create clarity around those priorities. I think as you scale, the message can get lost or communication becomes hazy. It's a bit like that game of telephone as a kid. And so, you know, creating clarity and reinforcing clarity 
is something I, I try to do as consciously as I can. What keeps you up at night in a professional context? <laughs> no, that's a good question. I would say for me, it is ensuring that we're moving fast enough. I think there's an inherent sense of urgency that I feel as a founder and also as someone responsible for you know 500 lives here now at, at Starburst and, and 500 families, if you will, at Starburst. And you know, want to make sure that this is a great journey for all of them. And and it, we operate in a dynamic market with very large competitors and both established ones and and other up and comers. And so, you know, just ensuring that we're moving as fast as we possibly can is probably something I lose some sleep over. What do you do to take care of yourself? Obviously, founders have a lot of stress. There's a lot of anxiety, as you mentioned there. There's a lot of pressure. What do you do to you know take care of yourself and just balance it all? That has changed also, I will say, with age for me. I think in my first startup, which was you know, 12, 13 years ago, I guess, A, I was single back then. So that was like a different, I had fewer dependents, I guess, on me in that, in that way. But also, you know, I think just physically, I, I was in a place where I could work you know, 80, 90, 100 hour weeks, week after week after week with minimal effect. At this point, you know, I'm married. I have three young kids, all under the age of five. So there are a lot more demands on my time and a lot more you know, areas where I have to spend energy. And so I really try to take heart the advice I got a long time ago that you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And you really do have to think of it that way as a, as a journey. And you know, how do you create endurance for the long run? And so for me, that, that involves you know, running to stay in, in some kind of shape, to be able to have the physical endurance, but also you know, spending time with my family on the weekends spending time with my young kids and, and my wife and, and being able to get your mind off of things as well, I think, and can help refresh it as you bring it back to work. And so I think that's probably one of the biggest differences between me now, me early in my founder experience is trying to actually have harder lines between um, you know, personal life and, and professional life and, and really make sure that I'm treating that weekend time you know, appropriately for my personal life and my family. What's your superpower? If you had to choose one thing that you're world-class at, or maybe yeah, another way to ask this would be, what would your colleagues say that you are the best in the world at? Maybe I'll answer that in two different ways. What I think and maybe what my colleagues might say. For me, sometimes I wonder if I actually have any superpowers. I feel like the one superpower that I feel like I might have is just like pain tolerance. you know. And, and I think that's valuable for any entrepreneur, any founder, is being able to endure pain and, and continue to push forward. So that's the only one I can come up with. But I think, you know, maybe some others would say the ability to translate technical topics to an audience that others can understand. And I think that makes me, you know, somewhat effective in, in terms of customers, recruiting, hopefully rallying our employees. But there is some art to that, you know, taking really technical domains and, and making it approachable and accessible. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. In the media, there's a lot of glamorization of what it's like to be a founder and to be an entrepreneur. And obviously it just looks so cool from the outside. From my conversations with founders and just being a founder myself for the last 12 years, I know that's not the case. There's a lot of painful moments. There's a lot of challenges. 
What's been the lowest point for you so far on this journey? I think one of the frustrating challenges in our business a few years ago was this forced name change. So I mentioned that the the open source project my co-founders created was called Presto. And a lot of people knew it as Presto for many, many years. Some people today still probably know the name Presto. But when they left Facebook and we went full speed ahead with Starburst, they didn't technically own the trademark. They didn't technically own the name Presto. Facebook did. And they contributed that trademark to the Linux Foundation and and so then the Linux Foundation owned that trademark. And ultimately, you know, there was threats of, of legal action against my co-founders over usage of the name. And so the branch of Presto that they were building on, which was known as Presto SQL, had to change its name. And so that's how Trino was born. And today Trino is by far the more vibrant, more contributors, more attention, larger Slack community, more engagement. Uh, more everything, moving many, many multiples faster as a, as a project and, and technology. And it's what's used by you know thousands and thousands of companies today. But the reality was that name change itself was kind of reset from a, a brand awareness perspective. And it was frustrating and it was very frustrating to them because of course they were the creators of this project and how could they be you know potentially sued over a, a name that they created. But also frustrating for me as the CEO of a business who now had to try to re-educate the market. Actually, Trino is the project that you know and love. And Trino is the one that is moving very quickly. And Trino is the one that's used by the largest you know, companies in the, in the world. And, and so that was a particularly difficult period. I think we're still paying down some of that, you know, like sort of debt, if you will, of awareness, awareness debt, maybe I'll call it. And, and uh, you know, c- continues to be something that that I feel like, you know, slowed us down. You know, we, again, we were still been a very, very fast growing business by every measure, but branding is something that takes a long time. And so, you know, having a setback like that was, was painful. How involved are you in branding and just marketing in general? I get very involved as a sort of the company spokesperson, but we have a great marketing team that, that is always coming up with new ideas for new events, uh, new meetups, new uh, demand generation programs, new new slogans, lots of t-shirts, you know, all that all that stuff. So it's really it's really them. I mean, occasionally I have input on a on a name, like a brand name or something like that. You know, obviously Starburst is our company name, and so we have a lot of fun with sort of star and astronomy-based uh, sci-fi type theme names for some of our products. Like we have one called Stargate which allows you to connect multiple Starburst clusters in different clouds. So you can actually query across different clouds and we call that Stargate. We have a a technology called Warp Speed, which delivers really, really fast query performance. So I I do get involved in those and and have some fun there every now and then. That sounds like you just overcame a big legal challenge with a name and and had to change it to something else. Starburst, is that risky? Did you ever have any just go and make some demands to change that? No. So the way that trademark law works, and I feel like I now have a PhD in in trademark law uh, based on some of these experiences, is as long as you are in a totally different business, it's okay. So as long as the the Starburst candy people don't make uh, data analytics software, and as long as we don't get into the candy business, we're both totally cool to operate with with similar names. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah. I feel like consumers aren't going to be confused. Oh, I thought I was buying candy and I ordered this enterprise software. (laughs) Exactly. I'm sure you've gotten many things right, but if you had to really pick one thing that you just nailed that you can really attribute your success to, what do you think that big one thing would be? 
I would say finding mentors along the way. You know, there are always people that have come before you and have you know, gone through some of the, the same struggles. And I will even say finding different mentors for different parts of the journey, I think is super valuable. I remember asking a founder CEO of a now public company, I said, does this job ever get easier? And he said, no, it's just different kinds of hard. And that has continuously kind of echoed in my mind because I think that's exactly right. It, it is a journey. It is a marathon like we were talking about before, but it's different at every stage, like completely different at every stage. Like the skills required to run a 500 person company are very different than the skills required to run a 25 person company. And finding mentors who can help you with the stage that you're at, I think is really, really valuable. How do you find mentors? Well, this is an area where certainly I think investors can be helpful and add value. Other portfolio company founders who are maybe a year or two or three years ahead of you, I think is a, a great uh, starting point. That's probably where I've, I've met most of mine. The other, I would say, is just like within your space, trying to find domain experts in your space who come before you. So like when I was doing my first startup, I wanted to know the CEOs of every database company in Boston, where I'm from and where, where, I, where we founded the company. So I made a point to make sure that I met the CEO of Vertica, which was acquired by HP, the CEO of Natiza, which was bought by IBM, then the CEO of Indeca, which was bought by Oracle. And those were kind of like the big three success stories at that particular period of time, all happened to be in, in Boston, which was fantastic for me. And uh, they became great mentors for me through that journey. What would you say has been the most pivotal point of the company? Can you pinpoint one where it was just like, wow, everything right after this point shifted? Of course, unrelated, you know, separating from anything related to the brand side. Yeah. I think for us, I'll go back maybe a year and a half or almost two years now, which was the creation or the launch, I should say, it was, it was a couple of years before that, that we started working on it, but the launch of our cloud product, it's called Galaxy and Galaxy is, is a SaaS delivered solution. So you get all the power of this technology, but in a really easy to use packaging. And that has always historically been our biggest source of friction in, in terms of building the business is the time it takes to deploy the self-managed software, the complexity associated with it. So Galaxy really kind of covered up all those challenges in a really easy to use package. And that has allowed us to go further down market and really broaden our market potential. Whereas previously we were really concentrated exclusively in large enterprise. Large enterprise will always be important to us. Of course, those are important customers for us as a business, but Galaxy really allows us to expand. So I think that was a huge step in the company's journey. And I think a lot of things change when you become a, a SaaS company, both in terms of how you sell and how you develop product and how you support and operationalize a technology on behalf of your customers. So a lot of changes involved in that. And, and I think a, a real accelerant to our business. How do you think about your market category? Is data lake analytics, was that like an established category that you took a disruptor or a challenger position in, or is that a category that you've really created or been part of creating? Oh, that's a great, great question. And I, I'm sure our CMO would love to have a long discussion with you about that, you know, the, especially the notion of category creation. I would say in this case, we are members of an emerging category. Some people call it a lake house. That's another term for it. But it, a data lake analytics platform is really just saying we're doing data warehousing in a lake. And it's a category that's certainly growing, has a lot of momentum behind it. There's some other large players that are playing in that space. All of the major clouds have an offering in that area. 
Databricks is another player in the space around that. So I think it is gaining momentum as a legitimate alternative to the traditional data warehouse model. You know, we have a podcast called Behind the Category that focuses on category creation. So I'll hit you up for the intro to the CMO to, to tell that side of the story. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Now, you first became a unicorn in 2021. And again, we know you hate the word, but you crossed that threshold. You hit that milestone. What was it like that day for you? Can you take us back and try to just you know, walk us through what that was like when you found out that was going to be a reality? Yeah, it was, I guess, a bit surreal experience. But I think sometimes in the building of the startup, things are moving so fast that you can't even really reflect on them in the moment itself. Uh, and that it takes quite a bit of time afterwards to really digest and process and, and think about what it means in, in context. So I don't know that I necessarily was thinking too much about it at the moment, other than that this was the next milestone for us as a business to move forward. But yeah, I mean, pretty cool, especially when you think about the the humble beginnings again around being a bootstrap company. I don't think we would have really had any idea that it would become as as big as it did. What was more surreal, going from zero to one or from one to 3.35? <laughs> zero to one was probably the hardest part, but I think everything since then has felt surreal. So now, in terms of funding, you raised $414 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising from this process or throughout this journey? I think there are a few things. First of all, I think you have to create relationships with investors early in the process before you're actually fundraising. A mistake that I see very often is that entrepreneurs say, okay, I'm fundraising, and they just expect to run out and in two weeks, term, term sheets and, and complete a fundraise. And I rarely see that work. I mean, almost never. I think that realistically, investors have to get comfortable with you, the space, the team, the product that you're building, and really get comfortable with it, socialize it, even within their own partnership. Like you have to become a known thing before you go actually throw down the gauntlet and, and raise. And so the advice I give entrepreneurs is, is you should be doing that like six months before you actually do a fundraise, like get to know investors be very clear that you're not fundraising. That's even better. In fact, the best time to fundraise is when you're not fundraising. So if somebody wants to throw you a term sheet early, great. You can react to that opportunistically, but, but do this intentionally ahead of time and create those relationships and maintain those relationships over time. Even the ones that, let's say, you don't select when you do raise your first round, they may be your Series B investor, your Series C investor, your Series D investor. So really creating those relationships I think is really important because at the end of the day, somebody's going to trust you with a whole bunch of money and they can't trust you if they don't know you. So that's my advice. So you're based in Boston, is that correct? Yes. Is the whole team based there or is it remote? No, it's fairly distributed. Uh, Boston is technically headquarters and we do have an office here, but no, we're pretty much everywhere at this point. Do you ever have times where you say, I, I wish the company was headquartered in Silicon Valley or has that never been an issue or never been a thought for you? Well, during my first startup, it was definitely a thought. And in fact, back then, it was arguably a competitive disadvantage for me to not be there because I think, especially, you know, historically, that ecosystem is just so vibrant. Even like information exchange happens at such a fast pace. You know, you go grab coffee with someone and suddenly you've just learned about something that's going on that you just don't, you didn't get from, from Boston. So I, I think in the early days, that was a real disadvantage. But with this company, you know, I think largely because of the pandemic and that forced things to become virtual, I never felt like it was a, a problem at all. And even, you know, in the pre-COVID 
portion, like when we raised our Series A, which was just before COVID began, my kind of dream scenario was to build a, a lot of the company in Boston, but raise from West Coast investors. And not just because they generally offer better terms, which I think is true, but also because they're just so much more plugged in and, and connected. And so to me, you know, having the benefits of Boston, which to me are, you know, phenomenal engineering talent, slightly lower cost, but also a more loyal and committed uh, workforce, in my opinion. I think in Silicon Valley, you have people kind of jump around a lot more often than you do in Boston. So I think the people of Boston are, are a great asset. And I think raising venture from the West Coast, you know, and the combination of the two feels like, uh, feels like the best way to go. Let's imagine that you were starting the company again today from scratch. Based on everything you've learned so far, what would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself? I think it is touching on a little bit of something we, we spoke about, which is that it's a journey and every phase of the journey, every step of the journey is different. And I think that's an important realization that, that I certainly have now, but maybe was not as obvious in the early days, which is to say that the job is changing, the requirements are changing. And I think like we have a tendency to kind of look at the current situation and say, you know, this is broken or that's bad, but it may be bad for this stage, but maybe good for another stage. I think that's also true of the people that work in a startup. I think some people are better suited for their earlier stages. Some people are better suited for the late stages. It's not that one is better than the other. They're both super important and both super necessary, but they're different. And I think like those fundamental differences often get glossed over. I think, uh, you know, somebody who joins a pre-IPO company that's doing 100 million in revenue thinks that's a startup because it's pre-IPO, but that's very different than a 15-person company that is also a startup, uh, but a very, very different type of startup. And so I think that's where I would probably remind myself or, or set that expectation with myself early on, that, that it's a journey, every phase is different, and, you know, approach it that way. Final question here before we zoom out. What's the big picture vision? We know you're not going to move into the candy market anytime soon. So outside of candy, what's happening? What's going to be coming down in the next, let's say, three to five years? Yeah, exactly right. I think we're going to stay in data analytics. And I think for us, it is really trying to be that, that single point of analytics for organizations across all the data that they have, because we don't actually store the data ourselves. We give customers the freedom of choice. And we're able to really understand all the data and all, all the elements together. And we think that becomes increasingly important, not only as companies move from on-prem to the cloud or multi-cloud, but also as we see increased interest in creating generative AI and, and building large language models. And, you know, a model is only as good as the data it's trained on. So being able to have access to data that lives anywhere from one particular engine I think, you know, we'll have a lot of value in, in the years to come. And that's the role we want to play. We want to be the, the alternative to the traditional data warehouse model, a better alternative, one that gives customers freedom and, and choice. Amazing. Love the vision. And I love everything you're doing. And I, I really have loved this conversation. We are up on time, so we'll have to wrap here. Before we do, if there's any founders that are listening in that just want to follow along from a company building perspective, where should they go? Yeah, well, I would love to have them connect on LinkedIn. And that's usually where I, where I post most of our stuff and, and would love to connect that way. Awesome. Justin, thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Brett. Keep in touch.